So uh, in the next, next two or three weeks, I'm going to be teaching on a subject uh, from a class that I took uh, this past summer at Regent College. Regent College is a seminary in Vancouver, uh, British Columbia. I've been going there for about 15 years. About every two years or so, I take a, a graduate class there for a few reasons. One, they have uh, an award-winning summer school program. They fly in faculty from all over the world. It's become a thing. Uh, it's the also, I mean, when I started looking into this 15 years ago, it was the only graduate school in in the Western Hemisphere where I could go and audit a class. I don't write papers anymore. I'm done with that. And so they let me audit the class. And then the third reason is it's in Vancouver in the summertime. So yeah, I'm going there. I've had a lot of classes. This one I took this summer was called Rebuilding Family Household, Family and Church in, a, in the Technology Age. So when I came back and I, you know, kind of do a report for some of the people, you know, in leadership here, they mentioned, you know what, you need to come and teach that. And I said, it's kind of a Sunday school thing. And they said, why don't you teach from the pulpit too? So I'm going to spend two weeks on some very practical how to live in an age of technology. And then on the last week, on October 6th, I'll be teaching a Sunday school class for parents. And we'll be focusing on how to parent in an age of technology. And so new parents and young families and, and parenting teens, I'm going to meet at your at the same hour you normally meet, but we're going to meet in the auditorium, not in your classroom. And we would love for you guys, if you're looking to, you know, try out a Sunday school, one of these parenting Sunday school classes, this would be a good time to come. Uh, bring your friends. It'd be fun. So the class that I took, it was taught by a gentleman named Andy Crouch. I've been following him for, oh gosh, almost 25 years. He, he is an exceptionally intelligent cultural thinker. And he his resume is pages long. He's married, he's married to a research physicist. She's smart too. They just like, they're smart people that talk smart things all the time. You know, I don't know what it's like at their house. I can't imagine. Uh, at my house, it goes like this. Uh, Melinda, honey, uh, you forgot to feed the cats again. She says, Matt, sweetie, we don't have a cat. So I'm not going to bring my family conversation into this teaching time. I'm going to bring their family conversation to this. There were 10 lectures, a chapel service. We read a considerable number of periodicals and, and books and other media. Here's the, where the book, actually the class was based on this first book that I'm going to show you by Albert Borgman. It's called Technology and the Character of Contemporary Life, a Philosophy of Inquiry. Okay. English is his second language. He's German. This is a really hard book to read. Don't buy this book because it's titled Technology and the Character of Contemporary Life, a Philosophy Inquiry. Why would you buy that? <laughs> anyway, the, the, a lot that we're going to learn is, is from that book. It was prophetic, particularly when it was written. Another, another couple of books that you might be familiar with is from a rather famous author, Sherry Turkle. She has been teaching at MIT for decades now, and she was like the forefront. She almost invented the sociological impact of technology on the family. And when her original TED Talk years ago was released, she made the cover of, of Wired magazine because she was so optimistic and hopeful about all the things possible in the family and relationships because of technology. Her last TED Talk, not so much. She was like, oh, no, it's destroying human experience. So she's, she has a lot to say about that. And then finally, The Soul of Shame was a book that we used. I'm going to bring up that next week, and particularly in the parenting section. 
Uh, Andy's book that was used in the textbook is a very practical book. I ordered a couple hundred uh, copies of that. We'll be able to sell those when they get in. This is a very, you know, hands-on, here's how he did, here's how he raised his children in the context of technology. He had 10 commitments and, and how he expressed them. Very practical. Those, are, well, those will be for, for sale soon. Now, the series, the, the two weeks and the Sunday school class, is called The Siren's Call, right, navigating in this new normal. And the reason it's called that is based on Homer's famous, you know, uh, writings. He's the famous uh, legendary author of, of Greek myth, right? And it's the story of Odysseus's return home from, you know, after his battle of, of the Trojan War. He's working his way back, and he must pass by the shore where the sirens are calling. Now, the sirens are monsters, right? But they are disguised as beautiful women. And the power of these sirens is in their voice. They have a mesmerizing song. And they, and they, and they lead the sailors to the shores where they are, turns out they are not beautiful women. They, they well, here's their song. They say, come and let us entertain you. Let us entice you with our melodies. And what they mean to say is, why don't you come closer so we can kill you and then eat you? That's what the sirens did. Well, Odysseus has to go by these sirens, and so he finds out through a goddess from an advice that, about how he could maneuver this. And so he decides that, from her advice, that he would fill the ears of his, of his crew with wax. He gets beeswax from her and fills and plugs their ears up so they won't hear the songs of the sirens, but he wants to hear them. He wants to, every, no one's heard the songs and lived. So he is tied to the mast of the ship and then tells his men, no matter what I say, you need to, you know, keep me tied up because I want to hear this song. And the song, oh, it's enticing. Odysseus the bravest of all heroes. Odysseus, come and we will teach you wisdom. The songs we sing will bring you peace. Yeah. Their enticement was not in their beauty. It was in their promise of flattery and peace and wisdom. Now, because his ears were not plugged and he could hear the siren's song, he saw the sirens as these beautiful women, it says, with the beauty of Helen of Troy herself. And as he heard the songs, he tried to break free, and his men got up, and they tied him to the post even, even tighter still. They, unable to hear the music and the lyrics, saw the sirens for what they were. They were winged monsters with crooked claws, eager to eat them. Wow. Yeah, that's some story. The reason we're calling this series The Sirens Call is because when we talk about technology, let me just describe that word for a moment. Technology is not the internet, and it's not social media. It is way more than that, especially with Borgman's interpretation of things. We'll talk about a lot more of that next week. But it's, it's everything, that it's easy everything, easy everywhere is technology. So it's even the automatic dishwasher that you have, and I'm not against automatic dishwashers. But uh, we'll, we'll talk about that next week. But the idea is the sirens of wanting life to be easy everywhere has a consequence for us. And we, and we need the technology, just like he needed to get past these sirens. Odysseus had to get past that, but he had to learn how to get past it. He lived, he, lived, he sailed cautiously 
with insight and understanding about what he was going up against. And so he had a healthy fear, like we should have a healthy fear for technology. So he, listen, he chose ahead of time because he knew later he couldn't be trusted with choice. When he was sober, he made a decision because he knew later he wouldn't be able to. So we're going to look at technology. Hopefully, I'll be able to give you some insight in what, what it means and how it affects our minds and our humanness. But, but technology is a very good servant, and it is a vicious master. And so we must learn to live wisely in an age of technology because technology, it will bewitch you. Like the songs bewitched Odysseus and he couldn't even see them for what they were, technology can do that as well. Let me just give you a couple of reasons. This is interesting. Human vision, human vision was designed and it has always been for hundreds of thousands of years, able to see reflective light, not the source of light, but just the reflection of light. Right? The transmitted light for hundreds of thousands of years has, have been the sun, a flame, and a firefly. That's it. Right? So even, even, even the night light in the sky that we have, the moon, it's not a light. It's reflected light. And so our brain and our minds that are hooked up to our, our, our eyeballs are made to see that. Now with the Industrial Revolution, with, with, with electricity, with lighting, and now with, with laptops and phones, now we have projected light coming at us all the time. And our, our eyes and our brains go to that. It, 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 our, our vision is drawn to it, and we can't help but be drawn to it. Some of you in the audience right now, like it, it would be appropriate to look at me but it's easier to look at that screen. We actually designed, this is like the one thing I got with this auditorium, I wanted to make sure that I couldn't see these screens from standing on this place. I don't want to see anything like that come, you know, right? And, and let me, here's another better example, right? Uh, if you're in a classroom or you're in church and someone three rows up from you turns on their phone and then that screen lights up, oh, yeah, you're going to be drawn to that little screen three rows up instead of what you're supposed to be looking at. And so all the studies have shown in classrooms when somebody has a laptop open and they're, and they're multitasking, everyone behind them is multitasking with them. And that's why Alamo Drafthouse will have you thrown in jail if you open your phone during one of those movies. <laughs> God bless Alamo Drafthouse. Anyway, I, I distract here. Uh, the second, the second thing, just, just the, again, just, not just the physiology of, of screens, but also the addictive nature of them. They are designed by design. It, websites and the information that's available on the Internet is designed to be addictive. To boys, particularly. To girls, especially. To men, you bet. And to women, uh-huh, you bet. My, just two years ago, my life changed because I just got careless. Two years ago in October, I had a week off and I had big plans, you know, for stuff to do around the house. And when I got back to work after a week of vacation, about 10 days of vacation, I got back. When I returned to work, I was not refreshed. I was not restored. I was exhausted and distracted. And I was like, what happened to me? I had time off. And so I looked back and I realized I had dropped basic disciplines that I have in my regular, regular life. 
And because, because of the weather, I missed out on what I was planning to do. In October, two years ago, I was going to paint the outside of the house and do a bunch of fence work. But it rained the whole 10 days. And I didn't have plan B. And so every morning I'd wake up and I'd, you know, open my laptop and just like bounce around and stuff. I didn't go to any bad websites, don't get me wrong. But I did go to every single website on the Internet I mean, I would just ding, 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 ding. And when I was, like, done with vacation, I was done. I mean, I was, I was cooked. I was siren food. I had the attention span of a carrot. <laughs> and it wasn't until I got back to work that I realized what has happened to me, and I realized everything that I had ever read about the addictive nature and neuroplasticity and its effect on my brain, it happened to me in that one week. And I promise you, it took months to recover from it. Because what you practice, you become. And what you eat, you crave. And I ate junk food for the brain, and I was a sloppy soul. Technology has the power to adversely affect our humanness. Technology has the power to adversely affect our humanness. You don't have to appeal to Christian writers for this. People with great insight, again, uh, Sherry Turkle, the MIT professor, that her degree, her PhD is in social studies of science and technology. She's at the forefront of this all along. Hundreds of studies, thousands of people interviewed. Here's a quick paragraph from Scientific America. Listen to how she's appealing to this loss of humanness and why. I do some of my field work at stop signs, sometimes at checkout lines in supermarkets. Give people just a second, and they're going to do something with their phone. Every bit of research says people's capacity to be alone is despairing. It is disappearing. What can happen is that you lose the moment, that one moment you have to daydream, to cast an eye inside, and instead you go outside. Solitude is the precondition of having a conversation with yourself. And this capacity to be with yourself and discover yourself is the bedrock for human development. But now, at the youngest age, at two or three or four, children are given technology that removes the solitude by giving them something to externally distract them, to go outside. Dr. Turkle is saying, we have to be alone, solitude, to experience the fullness of human development, and that's being taken away from us. She's very concerned with this. Let me tell you, this is the answer to the siren's call. This is wax in the ears. This is tie me to the mast so that I can survive in this new normal of technology. These three things, solitude, quiet, silence. We have to plan ahead. We need to make choices before we make choices so that we can live. These three things, solitude, quiet, silence, they are good for the human soul good all by themselves, in any context, in any age. They are also the only way to survive the siren call of technology today. Henry Nouwen said, it is impossible for a person to have a spiritual life without solitude. It's that simple. 
Turkle says in her book, Alone Together, she says there, the, the, the difficulty we're having with solitude now is because we fear loneliness. And loneliness is failed solitude. Loneliness, by the way, is a thing we have to break through in, in solitude to enjoy. There's something on the other side of the loneliness. And her biggest concern, and other uh, scholars, their biggest concern with the lack of solitude is solitude is the place where we learn empathy, especially when we're very young children, and that's being taken away from young children. But listen, empathy is your ability to be able to, like, hear another person's soul and experience to know someone, to know someone deeply. That's an empathy skill. Empathy, oddly, empathy happens when you are alone learning about yourself. It is in this self-reflection, it is in that daydreaming about who you are that gives you the foundation to be able to turn outward towards other people. And so Turkle's fear is based on this ironic cycle of death that takes place in, in the modern media, particularly in social, in the social part of technology, in that, that moment in, in a doctor's office where you're in a waiting room and you're just like, okay, there's this quiet moment. Uh-oh, uh-oh. This could be a time where you are enjoying that moment and have a self-reflective time, but no, we go on and check some kind of social media so we can stay connected. But we can't connect because we didn't have solitude. In other words, you have to have solitude to be with other people, but we don't have solitude because we're trying so hard to stay connected to other people. There's power in solitude. And the Bible has been saying this for millennia. For maybe 30 years, developmental psychologists have been saying solitude is required. And now neuroscience is proving it even, you know, with, with in, the, in the laboratory. There's power here. You must have time alone. John Paul Sartre said, if you are lonely when you are alone, you are in bad company. Paul Tillich says that loneliness, solitude is the glory of being alone. Loneliness is the pain of being alone. And we fear that pain. But, but we have to transcend that. Loneliness, here's, here's, you have to break through the loneliness. Loneliness is this, it, when we're very young, particularly when we're young children, this is why it's so important in, in developmental uh, seasons, Loneliness is this desire for intimacy. And a child needs to learn to be alone so that the child can learn at an early age that the loneliness is okay and it's to be embraced so that they can learn who they are. They can connect with themselves. Some of the best conversations you will ever have in your life is with yourself. And if you deprive yourself of that opportunity, then you can't have conversations with others. And so... What's lost sometimes in our upbringing, maybe you, didn't, you weren't taught how to be alone without being lonely, and now you have to learn how to be alone without being lonely and alone without being bored. We fear boredom. And it is in this loneliness and sometimes the boredom, as F.B. Meyer says, it is in loneliness that Jesus shows up to show himself for who he is. There's something on the other side of loneliness. When you're alone, it's, it's glory. 
And that's why all the Bible characters that are heroes, you look at the men and women in the Bible, they all have extended periods of time in solitude, set apart, in silence, in quiet, where they can experience the fullness of who God is. So whether it's Abraham or Moses in the desert with the sheep or David on the run from Saul, Elijah in his, like, he's the sole prophet But John the Baptist, Paul, Jesus the Christ, in his humanness, must experience solitude. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed so that he can be filled, so that he might hear the Lord. He would hear the Father's voice in those places of loneliness, in places of solitude. Excuse me. It says loneliness in the passage, right? So here's the thing. Here's what we're going to do. So, again, the last few weeks we've been in some really heavy, thick stuff. These next two weeks it's going to be very application. Here's what we're going to do. 30-day challenge. Okay, it's like a free membership. You know, you get a month free at some gyms. Here it is. Grace Covenant Church, let's get in shape. 30-day challenge, a new practice to become a new person. Between now and the 50th anniversary, which is October 20th, it starts then. That's about 30 days. Let's see what happens. Three disciplines. We're going to do these three disciplines. We'll learn three this week. Another couple next week are really fun ones, kind of weird, but they're fun. But these disciplines can help change our life. You change what you do, you become a different person. What you, right, what you do, you become. What you practice, you become. Now, disciplines, don't be afraid of that. Those are, that's a spiritual word, the disciplines of the faith. It's like, it's like working out. That's why I'm calling it like a gym membership. It's like working out. And, and the point of uh, lifting weights, for example, is to, to get to a place of progressive overload. You get to that place where you can't lift it anymore. Awesome. Whether it's one pound or 200 pounds, you get to that place. And then you grow strong by getting to that place of overload, that place where you can't go farther. That's the only way a muscle grows. That's how it works. Now, listen, you don't, you don't lift weights so you can lift weights. Right? It's a means, not an end. You lift weights so that you can have a healthy body that you carry around in all the other important stuff of life. So the disciplines of the faith are like working out the soul, not a muscle, but you bring it to a place of of progressive overload, a place where you're bumping into that place where you're uncomfortable, solitude, quiet, silence, and then you grow. It's the only way there is to grow. And by the way, solitude and quiet and silence these disciplines have been around for, I was going to say, 2,000 years, but more like 4,000 years. They've always been part of the disciplines of the faith of the saints. And, and like all of the disciplines, it, they're purposeful in, in, in strengthening our hearts and souls. Uh, fasting. Fasting is a great example. Fasting is when you, you decide, you choose ahead of time to do something because later on you don't want to trust yourself with choice. And fasting is a great example of saying when your mind, okay, the metaphysical, the non-physical part of your, of your essence of who you are, your soul, your mind, says to your anatomy, your stomach, shut up with all your growling. You're not the boss of me. That's what fasting does, the, the discipline of fasting physically. And then spiritually, it says other things. It says, man, this is a great time to pray, or I can relate to the Lord in, this, in the context of fasting. Fasting is when you choose ahead of time not to choose later. Fasting is when you say, tie me to the mast, put wax in my ears. I'm going through some really bad singing here going on. It's facing the fears. Solitude, 
quiet, silence these disciplines, right, is facing the fear of loneliness and busyness or boredom. And each time we do it, we get a little bit better, a little bit stronger. Listen to this. The most powerful choices that you make are not often the big choices. The most powerful choices you make is when you choose to change your patterns, when you choose to change what you practice, because what you practice, you become. What you eat, you crave. And if you could choose, if you would join us with 30 days, the church, grace, together, we can choose to change our practice so that we change who we become. Because this is critical, especially in technology. Because technology is is designed to distract us. It is designed to keep us thinking about what's right now. Never stopping and thinking, okay? The technology does that. And if that weren't bad enough, it is fueled by part of the lostness of our bent soul is to stay distracted. Before there was technology, Blaise Pascal in the 1600s wrote, right, his, his memoirs, his thoughts. He's one of the smartest men that, has ever, that have ever lived in the West. And he wrote his major section on his thoughts is called Distractions. He noticed watching people, they, they stayed busy, they stayed distracted because they were so fearful of a deep thought about the frailty of their own lives. So we have, we're, we have something bent inside of our souls saying stay distracted, and now we have technology that's designed to, stay, to keep us distracted. The power of these sirens, friends, the, the power of the sirens call, we have to choose before it happens or we, it'll be too late. We have to choose now. Choose to be disciplined in these three areas. Solitude. Solitude is the ability to be alone without being lonely. It is the ability to be alone without being bored. Bonhoeffer wrote this. Let him who cannot be alone beware of community. And let him who is not in community beware of being alone. There are people that are addicted to being with other people. You should be afraid of that addiction. There are people that don't like other people and want to be left alone. You should be afraid of that loneliness. That's what Bonhoeffer is saying here. The point is solitude. It means slow down. It means having the most crucial conversation you could have. It's probably with you. It is going through the boredom, getting to the beauty part. And for some, it is exceptionally hard. I understand that. Look, especially if you have children, young children, they don't, they don't want you to be alone. This is a based on a true story, right? Three, there's three children. You have to look carefully. Look at the toddler on the ground. It's like, what's going on, mom? Not, you know, and then meanwhile, me in the living room enjoying a book all by myself. <laughs> That's how life is when you have little ones. My point is, is to make solitude a priority. Start small, but go big. Your soul longs for this. Victor Frankl, right, you probably know the name. He wrote the uh, man, Man's Search for Meaning. He was in the ghettos and then ultimately the Nazi ghettos and then ultimately Auschwitz, the death camps, for I think a total of four years. And because of the way they packed people together in, in those, the context and those circumstances, he was forced to be with people all the time. And he said, I craved solitude. I just wanted to be alone with my thoughts. And here's, here's the extreme that he went to to achieve that. He knew his soul needed that. 
There was a tent behind the hospital where he worked. He served uh, in, the, in the hospital there, and, and the tent behind it is where they stacked the most recent corpses. And you would be left alone if you went back there. And so he arranged so that he could be in charge of that. And he would just go back into that tent where all the corpses were and open up the back of it. And so he could see the rolling hills of Bavaria and the, and the green and the, of, the, of the plant life and the flowers and the mountain range. And he would just find himself lost in that moment of solitude. It was only, it was only the sound of the soldier's boots that would snap him out of that. That's how important it was to him, right, to hang out with dead people, to be alone. You need to do whatever you need to do to be alone. When I had kids when they were young, actually when they were teenagers too, two words. I could have all the time I wanted myself, two words, yard work. <laughs> Who wants to come out back and do some yard work? What? Melinda figured it out too. It's amazing how slow you can plant a flower if you work on it. They'll leave you alone. They will. They'll stay away. If you're married and you have children, you work as a team, the best gift you could ever give your mate is solitude. They need to have a conversation with themselves, with God. Be still. Be still and know that I am your God. you got to stop. You've got to just be there. Put your palms up. Just put and enjoy the presence of the Lord. I love this verse, Psalm 130. It says, I wait for the Lord. No, my soul waits. And his word I put in is where I put my hope. Palms up. Psalm 130. I wait. My soul waits. Just be still. Just stop. Try this. Five minutes. Then go to ten. Maybe 15. You have 30 days. I bet you can go to 30 minutes. Just be alone. Second discipline we're going to try for 30 days is be quiet. Quiet. Quiet is we're living in a noisy world, and so you do what you have to do so that it, you turn off the noise. One of the problems I have with this, and I've learned so much from this experience uh, from the summer, is I love music. I love it too much, and I have some great... Uh, equipment to hear music. And, and, and music's a beautiful thing. It has power. It has beauty. I, I, for worship purposes, if you're in, de, in a context of devotion, but, but music was chasing out my quiet. And, and I've learned that quiet is what I need to, quote, hear. And now, as a major part of my devotion is quiet, silence, the silencing. I, just this weekend, uh, I've been painting the inside of the house, and boy, I tell you what, you can paint with classic rock. You can get stuff done with that kind of stuff playing loud and often. And this time, I didn't go to praise worship music either. I just, nothing. Two days of just painting, but quiet. Wow. It took, a, it took some time. It took some time. Find a place that's alone and quiet. Some of you ADHD people, hey, can I throw a bone out to you? Have a little pad of paper next to you. As soon as you have that thought, write it down. Now it's done. Back to being quiet. <laughs> silence is the next, next one. Solitude, quiet, silence. Quiet means it's, it's, it's directed towards your ears. Silence is directed towards your tongue. Don't talk. Don't talk. You're listening. Okay? Don't talk. Listen. Did you know that God whispers. It has to be quiet, and he won't talk over you. 
And so it's, it's Psalm 62, David says, my soul waits in silence for God, right? For him is my salvation. That's when we hear him, when we're not talking, when we're listening. That's the palms up you're receiving. Solitude, quiet, silence, be still. That's the discipline. That's how you navigate in, in this siren call of technology that we're surrounded with all the time, everywhere. Here's a new habit. Kind of combines all three of them. I was reading about it going into the class, and then, and then Andy uh, talked about it. His new discipline was expressed in the class, and I'm doing it too. It's, it's so simple. It's so simple. Here, starting in each day like this with solitude, silent, quiet. Here's how I used to start my day. I'd walk outside, you know, I'd walk out to the kitchen, fire up the iced tea maker. While that's being made, I'd go to the laptop, open it up, and see what's going on in the world. Why, why would I do that? What good could possibly come from opening up a laptop first thing in the morning? And that's what Andy was doing as well. And so now, while the tea's being made, go outside. Just go outside, wherever outside is. You stick your head out of a window. Whatever it takes, you go outside. And now you're exposed to the illumination of God, right? The, we're talking about the stars at night or the moon, maybe, you know, the, the sun itself, and you go outside. And the weather doesn't matter. You know, your happiness is not contingent on weather patterns, right? I was reading a novel by C.S. Lewis this, this week, and, and it's in London, right? And this couple, this really righteous couple says, you know what? I just love weather. And the woman says, oh, you mean good weather? No, 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 all weather. It was a dreadful day in London, you know, the, the fog and the rain and all that. She goes, oh, I just, we've just learned to love weather. It's just so fun. I thought, you know what? I need to learn to love, like, heat, hot mornings, <laughs> hot, humid mornings, because I am, my soul's health is not contingent on weather, weather patterns. So just go outside. The tea's being made. I go outside. I'm not going to open a screen until I go outside just for a few minutes. And just drink it in. Look up in the trees. Look at the sky. Watch it move. Be part of something that was created by God. Pause. Enjoy. Solitude and quiet and silence. It's a new way to live. It's just simple things that can change our lives. It's not the big choices. It's the choice to change patterns. Because what you practice, you become. What you eat, you crave. Odysseus survived the sirens because he knew what he was, he knew the power of the sirens and he knew the, the weakness of his own will. How did all the other sailors perish? They didn't know or understand. That's too bad. Or they didn't prepare. Maybe they just thought, well, when I get there, then I'll choose. They became food. This is what you do. You choose ahead of time who you'll become and how you'll get there. You choose now. Solitude, quiet, silence. And in that, what happens, this is Christian and non-Christian both, what happens to your soul is you start, you start saying to God, no, 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 you first. No, no, you talk. And what happens is you start bringing that to the rest of your life because your soul is filled and right, and it's healthy, then you can go to other people and say, no, 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 you go first. No, I want to know who you are. I have empathy suddenly. I can, I can enjoy the difference in your life and in mine. 
I'm not going to project my life on your life. That's not empathy. I'm going to involve your soul with my soul. I'm not going to listen to respond. I'm going to listen to understand. That's life-changing. That, that's invigorating. It renews the soul. It, it energizes our mind. These disciplines, solitude, quiet, silence, alone with God, listening for the whisper. So, Grace, what do you say? We get our souls in shape. 30-day challenge, one month free. Let's see what happens when we change our patterns, change our practices. Let's see if it does, in fact, change our souls so that we might navigate the siren's call and we can use technology and not be used or abused by it. Let's pray. Put your palms up. Just put your palms up. Just. Lord, would you give us a sweet taste of the refreshment that comes in solitude and silence and quiet? Would you give us that early so that we might find a new addiction? a new addiction that brings us wholeness and completeness, that we might hear our Savior's voice when he whispers, that we might feel the power and the courage of the Spirit when he directs us, we might enjoy the fullness of your love and grandeur and transcendent nature. Lord, would you give us not just the desire, but the courage and the fortitude to begin a new journey of alone with you, solitude, quiet, silence. Let us be victors. Let us be a church of victors in an age of, of shipwrecks. We pray this for our church and for our lives, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.